Well, if you've watched the news at all in the last few months, you will uh, know of this, the stories of uh, shootings in different states, in different places in the states. And uh, one of those happened recently in Charleston, South Carolina, where a young Caucasian man went into a uh, predominantly African-American church and just opened fire killing nine people who were in a prayer meeting together and injuring many more. Since that happened a a, a, a short while ago, it came to the point where this young man's bond hearing was taking place and the judge gave the opportunity for families of the victims to, to speak to this young man who shot their family members. And uh, I uh, read the transcript of it earlier this week And here's what happened with person after person after person, family of the victims, those those who were killed in that church that day. The daughter of a woman got up to speak to the killer and said, you hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgive you. I forgive you. While crying, mourning, She was expressing forgiveness. A man whose family member was killed got up next and said, I forgive you. My family forgives you. And I would like to take this opportunity to invite you to repent and give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change you. He can change your ways no matter what happens to you. I forgive you. Then a woman whose son was killed got up next. And said to the young man, this is my favorite one, we welcome you to our Bible study on Wednesday night. You have taken some of the most beautiful people away from us. Every fiber in my body hurts. But as we said in Bible study, may God have mercy on you. Then a woman whose sister was killed got up next and said, for me, as she fought tears, I'm a work in progress and I acknowledge that I am very angry. But we have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. May God bless you. This man walked into this church and killed a number of its members. When they had their first opportunity to speak to the man, person after person said, I forgive you, we forgive you. May God forgive you over and over again. We are continuing a series called One Anothering, and this morning we're looking at the subject of forgive one another. And uh, you can see uh, the texts that, that call chur- the church to do this. When we use the one another language, just by way of reminder, when the New Testament uses the one another language, he's talking about people in the church. He's talking about fellow Christians, how we are to treat one another. It begins with love. But it all flows from there. And one of the things that Christians do towards one another is they forgive one another. And as we can see from these beautiful people from Charleston, South Carolina, not only do they forgive their brothers and sisters, but they forgive their enemies as well. But Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In Colossians 3.13, it says it again, bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving 
each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Jean Vanier uh, wrote that community is the continual act of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Uh, community is the continual act of forgiveness, meaning that to, to actually do life together, to, to be a church together, you know what, you know what that, that partially means? We're going to wrong each other. To, to be in community together means to continually forgive one another. Why? Because the church is made up of sinners. Sinners saved by grace, but sinners nonetheless. And for us to truly be the church, it means that we are continually forgiving one another. Community is a continual act of wronging and being wronged. And so a question that arises from that then is, how can we live through that constant heartbreak? Another question is, why would we live through that constant heartbreak? And how can we survive it together? How can we survive it in a way that that leads us to transformation into new life in Christ? And on a very personal level, how can I possibly forgive the people who have wronged me? I want you to conjure up in your mind, for some of you it will probably be very easy, for some of you maybe it will be a little bit more difficult, and for maybe a couple of you saints this isn't an issue at all, but I want for you to spend this morning and even the moments right now conjuring up the people um, that you have really struggled to forgive and perhaps you have not forgiven, who have wronged you and you still don't know what to do with that. This sermon is precisely for that issue this morning. And it's an important one for how do we be authentic community? How do we be the church to one another if we don't walk through the wrongs we commit towards one another well, rightly, biblically, faithfully? So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John chapter 18. And I'll read to you uh, the text. And, and uh, just as I go there, let me open in a word of prayer. John, uh, Matthew 18, we'll start in verse 21. But Lord, I just I want to start this morning by, by simply saying um, this is one of those big pieces for a lot of us, Lord. Um, and the reason is, is because it, is, uh, it feels nearly impossible to forgive when people have wronged us so much. And God, some of us, I know, have carried things for years and years that we have not dealt with, that are still tender, that have been turning into bitterness and resentment. And so, Lord, we want to approach this faithfully. And so I ask, God, that um, your word would penetrate our hearts. I ask that you would soften our hearts for um, I know that we need to grow in this. So I pray that you would guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start by reading just a couple verses. Chapter 18 of Matthew. Um, This happens right after um, there's talk of correction and church discipline um, in the middle of Matthew chapter 18. And then it moves on. Peter, the, uh, the disciple Peter, has been listening to this. And so then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So the topic of forgiveness has come up, and now Peter's listening, and he's saying, okay, 
how many times should I forgive? And I just want to stop there for a second. Um, we, give, we give Peter a hard time, don't we? We're always knocking on Peter the disciple. Peter the apostle, we're like, whoa, that guy knew how to move and shake. But like Peter the disciple is sort of the laughing stock. We're like, what's with this guy? He's saying the wrong thing all the time. And at, at first glance, we can do that again because Jesus is about to say, well, you should forgive 70 times 7. Peter's saying, like, should I forgive seven times? And Jesus is like, no, like more like 490 times. Um, and so Peter just seems way off. And we go, ah, oh, Peter. But we need to give him a little more credit, I think, than we often do. See, at that time, the rabbis had been teaching that one should forgive an offense three times, but not beyond that. So at this particular time, as Jesus is teaching, what was common Uh, The common teaching at that time in Judaism was forgive up to three times, and that is the model of forgiveness. And so Peter steps in and says, how many times should I forgive? He's hung around Jesus long enough to be like, I shouldn't say two. I shouldn't even probably say four. I'm going to go with seven because that's that's sounding like a lot, right? And so he thinks he's getting it. Um, But I just want to stop for a second and say before we laugh at Peter again, Have you found in your life that you've even been able to forgive up to three times? The standard of the rabbis. The standard teaching in Judaism. And before we mock Peter in his response and say, Oh, Peter, you just never got it. Have you found yourself to be someone who could forgive up to seven times? Towards the same person who has wronged you in regards to the same sorts of things. See, as we begin to actually put our lives through the filter of those kinds of numbers, we think, wow, these are already quite large. He's asking as many as seven times. Well, see, seven is a common biblical number for completeness and goes well beyond the rabbinic maxim of forgiving three times. But Jesus responds to him, I do not say to you seven times. I don't say three times, but 70 times, seven times. In some of your Bibles, it may say 77 times. There's a debate about which it is. But I can't remember forgiving somebody a 76th time or a 77th time and then being like, where are we at? Right? It's the same sort of idea as 490. You're at 489. Watch yourself. Jesus said 490. It's just sort of the same. Like we just, it's, it's, Jesus is, is making a point here. When Jesus responds that we should give, forgive 77 times or 490 times, it was a way of saying that we should never stop forgiving. And then he tells a story. Can I tell you a story? Let me find the story. All right. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. It's a large sum of money, and we'll get to that. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. 
he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master, the king, delivered him to the jailers, literally the torturers, until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. It's a beautiful Thanksgiving word, isn't it? (laughs) So light and fuzzy and I feel warm inside. No, it's a hard word. In fact, this, this settling accounts is a, a metaphor for judgment. But I want to walk us through and, and, and give us a, a good understanding of what this text is saying this morning about forgiveness. So uh, the second point you'll see on the screen and on your outline is, is in regards to God's grace. That to receive forgiveness of an insurmountable debt. That's, that's truly grace to receive forgiveness of an insurmountable debt. And we see in this story the grace of a king, the mercy of a king. So here's the thing. A talent was the largest measure of weight in use among the Jews. If you wanted to talk about the weight of something, you would talk about a talent if you were talking about the biggest things around. So the talent was the biggest um, sort of term for weight, the biggest, largest measure for weight among the Jews at that time. And it doesn't say here if it was a monetary weight of gold or of silver. So it's referring to a talent, which was was because when it was referred to money, it was the highest known denomination of currency. So that's the talent word. And then in regards to 10,000, 10,000 was the highest number for which the Greek language had a word. I wish that was the case for the English language, because then my son wouldn't like almost every day say, what's the biggest number? And I'm always like, well, it's hard because you can always add one. There just isn't, and he's not getting that. So we we have a lot of conversations about that. I wish I could say 10,000. But that was the case at this time. So the largest number they knew was 10,000. And the largest weight, the largest monetary currency was talent. So 10,000 talents, depending on what it was. Are we talking about silver? Are we talking about Gold, what are we talking about? 10,000 talents was anywhere from, commentators will say, anywhere from several million dollars to billions of dollars in modern currency. This servant of the king owes the king millions, if not billions of dollars. And the whole point when Jesus is saying 10,000, the largest number and the largest weight, and putting it together, what is he saying? He's saying the same thing about, that he's saying about 70 times 7. It's beyond count. It's beyond payment. So in this case, to be forgiven of 10,000 talents of debt is to be forgiven of an insurmountable debt that could never be paid. And to the shock of those listening to Jesus telling this parable, the king doesn't sell him and his family into slavery, which was a common way to recoup some of the money owed. But he pities the man and doesn't require payment of any kind, doesn't require a payment plan. If only our banks worked like this, hey? 
what the king does is shows sheer grace. Debt simply forgiven that could never have been paid back. And that is grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Whereas mercy is not getting what we do deserve. What's getting what we deserve in this instance? It's a settled account with a holy God. But the king is showing mercy and grace. Grace and mercy are unmerited favor and favor in spite of merited judgment. If you've given your life to Jesus, if that's the case, then God in Christ has forgiven your insurmountable debt. He's canceled it. You owed billions to the king, and he forgave it. And that was before the time uh, that you could create apps and actually become a billionaire pretty quick. Like, it was just, you couldn't, you couldn't, it was just this debt you could never pay. And to become a Christian, to come to faith, is to recognize that Jesus has paid a debt. He's gotten you out of the pit. He's gotten you from the torturer's chamber, taken you from it, and given you grace. He's wiped the slate clean and covered it for you. That is what he has done. And yet some of us don't believe, we don't actually think that we owed God billions. We don't actually think that our sin could not, that we couldn't deal with it on our own. But look at what James 2 verse 10 says. James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the whole law. Law, even if you just mess up with one thing, if you sin in one area but not the others, you still transgress the whole law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, James instructs. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is saying is that none of us can keep the law because when we mess it up in one area, we are transgressors of the whole thing but instead act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty and the law of liberty is the freedom from sin provided by the gospel it's the debt canceled and the ability to pursue holiness in christ see mercy triumphs over judgment because jesus has lavished his mercy upon us this is the way that the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 4, work themselves out. Romans 1 makes a case that every Gentile, every non-Jew, no Gentile is righteous and therefore needs saving. Then Romans chapter 2 makes the case that no Jew is righteous and therefore needs saving. And Romans chapter 3 makes the case that none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Meaning all have sinned, but God in Christ made a way for us to have our debts paid. Have you ever been to a restaurant and had somebody foot the bill? Like you, the, you, the server comes around and, or you put your credit card out or whatever you want to pay and they're like, it's covered. Um, it happened to me, I was out for breakfast with a, a pastor friend in Abbotsford, and uh, we were trying to fight to pay the bill. And then the, the server came and heard us and said, oh, it's covered anyways. 
and we like looked around. I was hopeful it was someone from our church. He was probably hopeful it was someone from his. We were both just like, wow, this is amazing. And neither of us had to pay. It didn't affect either of our budgets. We were very happy. <laughs> and maybe you've been in a Starbucks drive-thru, right? And the person, you know, the person ahead of you paid or the person, you know, like that kind of thing. I've heard of these sorts of things on a larger scale, right, where somebody has paid a, a hefty amount just without the person knowing there was something that needed to be paid and someone just stepped in and paid it. And really, the lar- um, we only really know how to respond appropriately if, if we know what kind of value, how big the bill was. You know, when somebody buys your drink at Starbucks for you, you're like, wow, that's really nice. That's really kind, and you're warm-hearted about it. But if someone pays a bill that is enormous, you're not just like, oh, that's cool, that's great, that's nice, right? The bigger the bill, the more in awe, the more amazed, the more grateful we are. And so it's really the knowing how to respond appropriately has to do with how big the bill is. And so what's so important about this parable is that we see that we are the servant who owes an insurmountable debt that cannot be paid, and Jesus has paid it. And if that is the case, what does that do in our hearts? What does that do with our lives? What does that do with everything about us? It changes how we live and how we respond. And that's what the Bible tells us. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were bought with a price, Christian. And what is that price? The price is that Jesus died to save you. It cost him his life. In Colossians 2.14, it says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, Jesus nailed it to the cross with himself. He nailed the record of your debt on the cross and paid it there himself. So Jesus paid the price for us by dying for us. He paid the debt, which was an insurmountable amount for us to pay. And this is God's grace towards us. And so Jesus tells this story so we can get a true glimpse of reality. The Christian has received total debt cancellation. And he wants that to sink down deep into us. That recognition of his staggering loving kindness towards us so that it informs how we treat those who sin against us. So let's move towards that. C.S. Lewis in the book The Weight of Glory talks about the problem of forgiveness. And here's what he wrote. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily, right, for our wrongdoing. In other people's, we do not accept them easily enough. As regards my own sin, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are not really as good as I think. And as regards other men's sins against me, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that that the excuses are better than I think. But even if he is absolutely fully to blame, we still have to forgive him. And even if 99% of his apparent guilt can be explained away by really good excuses, the problem of forgiveness begins with the 1% guilt which is left over. To excuse what can really produce good excuses is not Christian character, it's only fairness. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the the bossy mother-in-law. Amen? I'll fix that at dinner tonight. Um, 
The bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There's no hint of exceptions And God means what he says. We see that in this passage. The the servant who had been shown mercy then did not show it to a fellow servant. And the king called him on it and put him in prison. See, to be a Christian, as Lewis put it, means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. He has canceled the multi-billion dollar debt at the price of his death on on a cross. Praise God. Now let's pick it up again and move on to uh, the third point. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, that's the king for the servant, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. See, when grace is not in view, vengeance is. When forgiveness is not in view, vengeance is. And this unforgiving servant was so focused on the failures of another that he was blinded to his own failures. See, he saw uh, how much he has been forgiven is not in view, but only what the person in front of him owed and and. All he sees is the wrong committed against him, which is minute in comparison. But in that moment, that's all he's thinking about. But that, Jesus is showing us, is where he gets it wrong. Now, a hundred denarii is is a hundred days wages for a worker, if you, um, for a laborer. So that's it's it's fairly significant. Um, It's about a third of an annual income. But we're talking about you know for a laborer. we're talking about maybe $12,000. So, so literally, if you can see in the text that, that, that perhaps this um, servant has been give, forgiven about $3 billion. And then literally, but when that same servant went out, like literally left the king's presence, he saw someone who owed him twelve grand. It's not insignificant but it's nothing compared to the debt he was just forgiven. And he seizes the man, chokes him, and demands that he pay back what he owed then and there. And then he wants to inflict punishment on, in, on him. He puts him in prison. He has no grace. He has no mercy. And there is no forgiveness. Simply vengeance. And vengeance is, the, is punishment inflicted or retribution exacted for an injury or for a wrong. But look at what Romans 12:14 instructs us to do. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And he concludes by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is saying, leave it to God who judges perfectly and go about seeking peace and the good of those who wrong you. Again, C.S. Lewis said, if God forgives us, we must forgive others. Otherwise, it is almost like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. It's not taking the words of Romans 12 and actually believing them or letting them sink into our hearts or, or, or just being unsatisfied that God is just and God will seek vengeance, that God holds the two of mercy, grace with judgment and justice and will perfectly exact his justice. It's saying, ah, it's, I'm not satisfied with that. I need right here and now to receive vengeance. The application for all of this is, look, when the gospel isn't in view, vengeance is. But what Jesus is telling us is have the gospel in view. Because you and I, if you're a fellow believer, if you, if you have given your life to Jesus, you're like that servant who was standing, begging before a king, saying you'll repay the debt. And the king looks at you and says, well, there's no way you can, but I will forgive it. I'll wipe the slate clean. That's me and you. And that is what we ought to, ought to have on our hearts and on our minds and on our lips. But if it isn't, then vengeance or lack of forgiveness, bitterness, resentments, are what come. Is the unmerited favor you have received from God in view when you're wronged or just the person who's wronged you? Look at the other servants. They become greatly distressed because they've actually observed this guy was forgiven billions and now he won't forgive 12 grand. That's the way it is in the household of faith. We are people who have been so greatly forgiven. There's literally nothing we cannot forgive. And so when we see someone who will not forgive in the household of faith, it distresses us because we say, have they not understood the gospel? All the other servants are distressed here because that's simply what makes sense in light of the gospel. We are implored to look back at the salvation we've received and let that inform our forgiveness of others. We're also implored to look ahead in anticipation of our future, the way things will be. Let's go to the fourth point. See, when eternity is not in view, only the moment is. This servant had no time but the present in his mind. He had been spared from a prison of torment of which he would not have had the ability to ever get out of. And now he's quite content to put a fellow servant there. See, eternity, no time but the present, was on the servant's mind. A.W. Pink says, afflictions are light when compared with what we really deserve. They are light when compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps their real lightness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which is awaiting us. How do the present circumstances that are difficult, how does the unforgiveness, the things that we are not, have not been able to work through, what do we do with those? Well, he's saying maybe the most compelling way is to compare those wrongs, compare those injustices with the weight of glory 
which is awaiting us. What he's saying is part of what frees us to forgive is to dwell on future promises. God promises to be a just judge, and, that, and we can trust that. And, and not only that, when in, in, in the future, in eternity, what will happen is all wrongs will be righted, and we can trust that. God will do that. All tears will be wiped away. All things will be made new. And those are future promises for every believer. And so what, what we're being compelled to see in this parable is we are to look back at how greatly we've been forgiven and look forward to the promises of future grace that await us. So my question is, if you're struggling to forgive, do you trust the just judge? Do you believe God to be a just judge? I guess another question is, are you eternally minded? It's so easy in this culture where we have so much and our comforts are quite nice to not think much about the future or long for heaven at all. But we are implored to be eternally minded See, we are to dwell on the promises of God and preach the gospel to ourselves of the past, present, and future. We have been forgiven. We are being forgiven. And everything will be made right in the future. And we are to recognize that this life is just the cover and the title page. And the best part of the book is the substance to come. We can rely on that. Lastly, as we conclude, a forgiving heart, a forgiven heart is a forgiving heart. The servant in the story has an unforgiving heart. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying that every believer must forgive every wrongdoing from the heart. Look at Luke 11, um, uh, Luke's telling of the, the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. In Matthew 6, Matthew puts it this way, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he, Jesus concludes after the Lord's Prayer, he concludes it this way, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's flesh that out a little bit. Uh, many of you will know the story of Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom wrote, in her autobiography, uh, wrote an autobiography called The Hiding Place. Her and her family hid Jews in Holland um, during World War II and were eventually uh, captured by the Nazis and put in a concentration camp. She writes of it here. She says, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat a Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested, that's her sister, had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard 
at Ravensbrook concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, she said, he did not remember me. But since that time, he he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, his hand came out, will you forgive me? By the way, her father and her sister died in those camps. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for, for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalid. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can't lift my hand. Or I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling, she said. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, and I had never known God's love so intensely as I did right then. Are you clinging to your unforgiveness? Have you been unwilling to grasp the outstretched hand that longs for it from you, that needs it from you, God can and will provide the will and the strength to forgive. God's word tells us so. Corey Tenboom tells us so. And the unforgiving servant, on the other hand, was delivered to the jailers, was delivered literally to torturers and put in prison until he could pay the debt. Can you imagine trying to repay a debt while being tortured in prison? It's an impossibility. 
See, unforgiveness brought the servant literal, physical torture. And on us, unforgiveness inflicts emotional torture. If you refuse to forgive those who injure you, your life will become a torture chamber. And every future encounter in your life will pass through the grid of your unresolved pain. Not only will will there be torture, but there will be consequences. The consequences of unforgiveness are experienced not only in this life, but also in the life to come. If we harbor unforgiveness, we forfeit God's forgiveness. In fact, the person who, over a lifetime, refuses to forgive ultimately reveals that he or she has never really comprehended or received the eternal forgiveness that God offers in Jesus Christ. We haven't forgiven the thousands when we've been forgiven the billions. And if we can't over the whole, a whole lifetime ever get there where we forgive the thousands when we've been forgiven the billions, it reveals that we've never actually experienced the beauty of the gospel at all. Because that's what the gospel does, my friends. And that's what precisely makes the church the most unique community in the world because we have been forgiven as much as possible beyond measure. So we can forgive even big injustices that are somewhat measurable, though. The king returns at the conclusion of the parable, saying, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on him as I had mercy on you? And he delivered him to the jailers. And then Jesus concludes. He actually jumps out of the parable in verse 35. He rarely does this in a parable, but he does it here. And he says, so also, just in case you missed it, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from the heart. It's a really quiet Thanksgiving morning here. But I'm trying to show you two things. The seriousness of our need to forgive, but the the ability to do so in the gospel that's like no other faith, no other thing on the planet. He can help you to do it. See, at best, unforgiveness reveals that you're not dependent on Jesus. And at worst, that you've never really known the gospel in the first place. But let me just have a quick caveat here and tell you what forgiveness doesn't mean. Thomas Watson said, we are not bound to trust someone who has wronged us but we are bound to forgive them. So let's use a little bit of wisdom here as we work our way to the end. Notice, forgiveness is not the absence of anger over sin. As I um, read the transcript and I actually watched the video of these families speaking to the, the, the Charleston shooter, there was anger, there was mourning, there was heartbreak in the voices of those people, and yet in the midst of that, they forgave doesn't mean you can't be angry at sin. That's actually a a godly trait. God is angry at sin. But in the midst of anger at sin, forgiveness can be extended. God, in the midst of anger at our sin, extended grace to us through Christ so that we could receive forgiveness. So forgiveness does not mean an absence of anger over sin. Secondly, forgiveness is not the absence of consequences for sin. That young man will be in prison for his whole life. Actually, in South Carolina, he could actually get the death penalty. The judicial system will do something with that. There are consequences for sin, and yet you can step in in the midst of consequences and say, yet I forgive you. So if that's what forgiveness doesn't mean, what does forgiveness mean? Well, the parable is about forgiveness, and it teaches that we must forgive without limits. 
since that is how we have been forgiven by God, that's gospel grace. The kind of forgiveness that makes Christian community distinct. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. And I love how I love how Romans 12 tells us to, when someone has wronged us, to to do good to them. That's actually how I find God to be to me. When I am at my worst, when when, when sin is, is, is ravaging my heart, and I come to recognize it, and I begin to repent of it, and I feel the weight of it, oh, the Lord comes in with such warmth and seems to be Loving me, serving me, extending grace to me, so much in those moments. That's what Christ does for us, and he calls us to do that. As people wrong us, that we begin to lavish mercy upon them as they wrong us. Because we actually have a paradigm for that. It's the gospel. So I want to give us two conclusions as we close. First, the command is to forgive one another, and that's inside the church. The servant should have forgiven his fellow servant from the heart. Is there a brother or sister in Christ that you have been harboring bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness of? I plead with you this morning to forgive them from the heart. To reach your hand out, as Corey Ten Boom did, said, say, Lord, I can do this much. Please give me the ability to see it through. Forgive from the heart that brother or sister in Christ, I plead with you. Secondly, you may need to forgive another. See, unforgiveness truly does torture us. It's a torture chamber in our hearts. And I want to see you experience freedom from that. So maybe there's someone not of the household of faith or beyond this church, a family member or a friend. Maybe you are having a dinner with somebody this weekend. And it might be your moment to extend the hand of mercy as God has so richly extended the hand of mercy to you with that grateful response, looking at past grace of the cross, current forgiveness from God for our sins, and the future promises that await us. I ask you, Central, would you lean into this and respond in faith? I'm going to invite our uh, prayer ministry uh, folks to to get into different spots in the room. We'll have someone up in the balcony. We'll have someone towards the front here and someone towards the back. And encourage you to make use of that. We're going to have a time of worshipful response. The band will come up as well. We're going to sing three songs and have a time of worship. Um, these people, these individuals, just avail themselves for prayer. And, uh, and they do that because they want um, to minister to you. The prayer of righteous people is powerful as it is working. And so we believe that, hey, just respond. It, it, it may be about this and it may not be. But we just want you to know whatever is going on, if there's a burden you're carrying, you may bring it and people will, would love to pray with you. So why don't we pray? And then we will respond in the time of uh, ministering to one another. God, thank you so much for this insurmountable debt (laughs) that you canceled for me. This insurmountable debt that you canceled for everyone who believes in faith that you have done so, that you will do so. God, we thank you. And God, we're really relying on you here. 
this is one of those really distinct moments where we either look like our culture or we look like the church. And I'm not simply talking about appearances, Lord. I'm talking about would you sink these truths down into our hearts that the rest of the community have no paradigm for. We do. Lord, I pray you would make us like that Charleston church. That even if tragedy comes, Lord, that we would know how to forgive in the midst of it. Lord, I pray where we have harbored things for a long time, we're recognizing the torture chamber that that can bring, and it's a lens by which we begin to see all of life, and it's all tainted. Lord, would you free us from that by allowing us to forgive, to be a forgiving people, one another and those outside the household of faith. Lord, we rely on you for that. Would you empower us by your spirit with conviction of your word to do so, always knowing that you have forgiven us far greater than we could ever forgive anyone. We believe it, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.